0: You're busy and you want the best for your kids. We're here to help. This is Hope and Will, a parenting podcast from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta.
1: I realized after it was too late, what I thought was a a seedless roll that she had taken a bite of, had some sesame seeds at the bottom. So I estimated she maybe had had two or three sesame seeds at roast. And I, Looked look down because something didn't feel right, she was holding my hand and she looks up and, and says, Mommy, I can't breathe. And I just didn't even know what to do, right? Your brain is shot at that moment, but you have to make a decision. With the start of a new school
0: year comes a new wave of communications about nut-free schools and classrooms. For those unaffected by food allergies, such communications can invoke feelings of frustration as parents scramble to find alternatives to PB&J and other popular lunchbox items that contain nuts. But for families affected by food allergies, every morning drop-off is still riddled with anxiety. Will today be the day my child goes into anaphylactic shock without me there to protect them? In this episode, we're joined by Susan Goldberg, whose daughter Julia suffers from life-threatening food allergies as well as Dr. Brian Vickery, Children's Chief of Allergy and Immunology, who leads Children's Food Allergy Program. Susan will share insight into what it's like to live in fear that a single bite of a well-intentioned snack could mean the difference between life and death. Dr. Vickery, who's played a pivotal role in Julia's food allergy journey, will discuss the prevalence of food allergies, as well as exciting developments in the world of oral immunotherapy, and what they mean for the future of people with food allergies. We'll close with insight from Catherine Sherry, a dietitian from Children's Strong for Life team who offers tips for packing snacks and lunches when nuts aren't an option. Well, it's my pleasure to welcome Susan Goldberg and Dr. Brian Vickery to the show. Thank you so much both for being here. Susan, this is such an important topic. I have friends that are dealing with this directly. We had a scare when my kids were younger and you were actually not a first time parent when you went on this allergy journey, right? You had a firstborn, Caitlin, that had made it through infancy and toddlerhood without any hiccups. And before your girls were born, I'm told that you were aware of some family history with food allergies on either side of the family. Is that right?
1: Yeah, exactly. My older sister grew up with uh, pretty severe lifelong food allergies. So I had lived the life of seeing what that looked like up close. And my husband, though I didn't know him then when he was young, had a pretty severe milk allergy that he was able to outgrow.
0: Mm. Dr. Victory, I'm just curious, when you hear that, is this family history of allergies, is that something that leads to what we're going to learn a little bit more about Susan's daughter?
2: Yeah, absolutely. We have long known and understood that allergic diseases in general tend to cluster in families. And while they're not inherited in kind of a one-to-one fashion, The tendency to be allergic is commonly shared amongst members of the same family. So somebody might have eczema, another person might have asthma, a third person might have a food allergy or a drug allergy. And so that implies that there are some genetics involved, although the genetics are not at all straightforward and it's something we're still still trying to understand.
0: But Susan, what's interesting is no one was affected in the way that Julia was. Your secondborn, second born, six months old, when you really discovered that this was not only a dangerous allergy, but a life-threatening allergy. Tell me what happened on that family vacation when everything was turned upside down.
1: I had a, an older kid, like you mentioned, and we decided let's go away. And it was shortly before I was returning from maternity leave, and we wanted to just have a time to relax and to celebrate. And so we went away. My older daughter, whom I'd been extremely careful and nervous about having a propensity for food allergy, had turned out by that time about four and a half years old or almost five, and she hadn't had any issues. And so with that, I decided to try to relax as a a stressed out mom of a young child and, and an older child and said, let me give a a try to some of the baby food that they had on site at the resort. And it actually noted that it, it contained a trace amount of eggs, but nothing else that she wasn't already exposed to because we had started introducing fruits and vegetables, you know, shortly before. So with that, I gave her some of it and she really didn't react very well. And I didn't really realize that that was the cause. She had started crying a lot, she was itchy, red splots all over some eczema, or not, not really eczema flare, but more in the hives realm, but I didn't really know hives very well back then. Then it just went away within 15 minutes or so. And so I'd been so nervous, but um, realized, okay, you know what? I was overreacting, no big deal. And then the next day looking back was not a smart idea, but I gave her the same food again. And the reaction was pretty similar. Uh, And she was itchy and crying, and I knew in the back of my head something really wasn't right here. I really kind of stayed up most nights thinking and worrying and decided that when I got back home, we would set up an appointment with an allergist to get her tested. And
0: you did, and the results were really shocking. Tell me what happened in that appointment. And I should mention that this early part of your food allergy journey, I know, took place when you were living in New Jersey, before you later moved to Atlanta, met Dr. Vickery
1: and became a part of the food allergy program at Children's. Well, that appointment was pretty horrible. I will never forget that day. I had actually between that vacation we mentioned and that appointment, given Julia, she was on the timeline to try a little bit of cow's milk yogurt. I had given it a little bit to her right before she was supposed to have a nap. And she just puffed up and it was scary. It was it was almost, to use a terrible word as a mom, grotesque, her eyes, everything were swelling up, her body, her arms, her legs. And it was terrible. I then knew, okay, something's wrong. And I kind of linked it in my head to being eggs and aller- uh, and milk, maybe allergy. So we went to that allergist appointment, but we went in there. And when I say we, it was just Julia and me. And I took her in and they interviewed us a little bit and then just got, decided to give her uh, the panels on her back. So that's where they stick the various serums in the back of the child to see what the skin reaction might look like, in, indicating an allergy. And you could imagine uh, an infant does not like, you know, 20 pin pricks in her back, Um so she was crying and screaming, and then you you have to sit there and wait and just see what develops. And I noticed things were developing on her back, but I really had no context for what that means. And I think my brain was just wanting to say, okay, this is probably normal. She's sensitive skin. And then the nurse came in to check on us, and she looked at her back and made a startling motion and sort of got a little teary in her eye, it looked like. And I was suddenly, you know, I snapped into action. I was like, something wrong. What's going on? I started to really panic between that time and when the doctor came in. And so he came in and the answer was, look at all of these. She's got allergies to everything. So it looked like from her skin, she had egg, soy, dairy, every nut, every tree nut, all sorts of seeds, shellfish,
0: Even mustard and tomatoes, I I, I see. I mean, and there was this swelling on the back that was as big as a quarter, and I understand that peanuts were the worst.
1: That's the one he showed me last, and he pointed to that one and said, that's peanuts. I probably asked something to the effect of, will this go away? And his answer was, well, maybe some of it, but probably not peanuts, and that's the worst one, and and basically indicated it was a a fairly lethal type allergy that, uh, that she most likely had. And I had a million thoughts swirling in my head and I I didn't have the ability to voice them. I, I don't know what I did or said. I can't even remember. But what I do know is that he said, you know, since I was exclusively nursing Julia at the time, that I had to take all of her allergens out of my diet because that was most likely causing her distress, whether that's through eczema or other ways. It was a very dark, dark time after that diagnosis and I knew to be protective and safe for Julia I had to get all the food out of the house she was little my older daughter was closer to five but still little and my husband didn't have experience with food allergy in the way I had with my older sister and the way I grew up was everything she was allergic to couldn't be in the house because it was too risky And that didn't go over well with anybody in the house, especially my daughter. You know, she wanted peanut butter and jelly for lunch. She wanted to drink regular milk. And my husband was very supportive, but I was so stressed out about just this whole family dynamic now where little Julia, who's such a sweet baby and has no idea what's going on, suddenly was a villain, right? It just felt like, I was alone and I had to defend Julia and everything was not going to be okay in our home.
0: And I know that you sort of made a promise to her at that time. Tell me about that.
1: I can remember this part of the visit when I was back at that allergist. I just sat there crying. I didn't really know what else to do. I was alone. They had let us, you know, to pack up and and bring her home. And I was just crying and I just sat there and I rocked her and I told her, Julia, I'm going to do whatever it takes to take care of you.
0: It's as a mother, what we work for, and you have to protect them from pretty much everything when you have that kind of allergy and you want, want to feel like you want to protect them in that bubble, but you don't necessarily feel like you can, I can imagine. And Dr. Vickery, when you hear Susan describe this, tell me on a scale of how extreme this is that Julia falls, how common is something like this?
2: Well, unfortunately, um, this kind of impactful story is one we hear all too too often. This is something that we all as parents can identify with, just what what it must be like to be confronted with the news of a potentially chronic, potentially life-threatening type of illness as a general concept and what that would feel like If we were in Susan's position, unfortunately, you know, 8% of kids in the U.S. have food allergies. That's one in 13. If you think about your typical elementary school classroom, there's going to be two kids in every classroom or so these days that have food allergy. I've heard families say things like, you know, look, if you're a food allergy parent, you worry about all the things that parents worry about. We worry about who's going to break their heart uh, with their first, you know, romantic relationship. How safe is the school really? getting in a car and operating a car, but we also have to worry about crumbs. You know, we have to worry about things that nobody else notices and we never get a day off.
0: You know, Susan, I've lived that experience of being in an allergy office. We had a scare with my firstborn. It was a terrible reality when you faced with how many things in your life might have to change. And one of them is learning how to use an epinephrine injector and making sure you have one available at all times, no matter where you are. Tell me about that with
1: Julia. There was a time my husband was away with my older daughter and I thought it would be a a treat to take Julia out to the diner for dinner. And I realized after it was too late, what I thought was a, a seedless roll that she had taken a bite of had some sesame seeds at the bottom. So I estimated she maybe had had two or three sesame seeds at most. So she seemed fine. I was very cautious and worried, but it seemed okay. And we were walking out and walking back to our apartment and I looked down because something didn't feel right. She was holding my hand and she looks up and and says, mommy, I can't breathe. And I just didn't even know what to do, right? Your brain is shot at that moment, but you have to make a decision. And i thought first should I call my husband, but he was too far away and there was nothing to do. And we crossed the street. We were in the middle of the street when she looked up saying she couldn't breathe. And I crossed the street and I saw some people sort of in the distance. And I thought maybe they could help me. And I was I was shouting and I was looking for them to come, but they didn't hear. And I knew that time was slipping away. And I just had to lie her down and say, I got to just pull your pants down. And I had to do an EpiPen and I was shaking. I, I just couldn't believe it was happening and I didn't want it to be true more than anything else I just didn't want her to have to need it but I knew she did and my hands were really shaking and it was really hard to count to 10 and she's crying and you have to kind of hold her down with your whole body to make sure she's not moving because they're not very happy at that time right they're screaming they're scared they don't know what's going on they don't want to be lying on a sidewalk a cold sidewalk having this happen in public I injected it and things got better but it's terrifying and you're alone and you don't know what the right answer is. And there's nobody there to tell you you're doing it the right way or you're not doing it the right way. I have a second EpiPen. Do I need to do that, too? Like, it's just it's really scary. And I've been trained on it. I'd watch videos on it. And you think you're going to be OK in that moment. It's just really terrifying moment. I can only
0: imagine, and I
1: need to pause here to share the disclaimer that
0: listeners should speak to their doctors about how to use an epinephrine injector and what to do when it becomes necessary to use one. So for you, Susan, you experience that fear every time you go on a Halloween parade, a play day, first day of school. Tell me how you handle those situations.
1: Yeah, and that's the scary thing, right? Because I had an older daughter, and at you know she was in preschool and then heading to kindergarten and you know what it's like to live with a kid who doesn't have food allergy and all the busyness of school sports and birthday parties and doing lots of things and Halloween always I felt like was the most stressful for for me and for my husband and you have kids where we lived. there was a big street that had big Halloween party you know setups every year and the kids are all running around and you have a two-year-old or a three-year-old who just wants to run around and be just like her older sister. Her older sister doesn't want to be slowed down. On top of the normal stress of trying to wrangle two kids in a Halloween setting that's crowded, you now have little Julia who's deathly allergic and any one of those things that slipped into her mouth could be a catastrophe, right? It just feels like you're going to mess up and you're in a minefield
0: But now you do. And that's because of that clinical trial you mentioned it. It's that oral immunotherapy. In the allergy world, it's known as OIT. And Dr. Vickery, I want to get your take on this. What exactly is this immunotherapy and how is it giving hope to families like Susan and Julia that they can go out there and be in this world and not be terrified of of a situation?
2: We'll talk about OIT. Before I answer that, though, I do want to just point out, I mean, You've heard this very powerful first person testimonial from Susan and her family about what food allergies mean. And if you look into the medical literature, you'll see published evidence that this is true across the population. We know using validated instruments that families really struggle with uh, mental health burdens related to food allergy, which can in some cases lead to frank anxiety and depression. But beyond that, even just the lack of normalcy, um, the missing out on the everyday things that all of us take for granted and the toll that takes, you know, cumulatively. So thanks, Susan, for sharing your story about that so that listeners understand this is broadly experienced by most families to, to one degree or another that have a kid with food allergy. So if you know somebody like that, show some compassion, right? This is not a choice. Nobody would choose to have this. It's a tough thing and it impacts just about everybody. So, One of the big impacts over time has been that we just really haven't been able to offer people much of anything. I think you've heard that from Susan. Here's your epinephrine injector. Just be careful. Come back next year. And that was pretty much the standard of care. Allergic reactions, send a child to the emergency room in the U.S. approximately every three minutes. It's not a simple solution just to say, oh, uh, just avoid it. It's very difficult to do that. And so what we've been working on in research over the last 10 or 15 years are ways to protect people from that vulnerability. Obviously, our overall goal is to cure food allergy, reverse it, make it go away so that people, you know, are are past it and don't have to worry about it anymore. We're not quite cure yet. We're working that direction. But what we've learned over the last 10 or 15 years is that we can now go beyond avoidance in some patients and begin to gradually expose them to tiny traces of their allergen or allergens at first, and then gradually over time, as they tolerate it, increase the dose slowly and under supervision. This is a very careful procedure that should only be performed by uh, allergists who are trained to do it. And over time, what this does is it causes a change in the immune system, um, uh, literally changes the biology of food allergy And clinically, it it makes the patient less sensitive. Again, it's not a cure, but this type of treatment is there in the background, protecting them from the inevitable accident that will occur. This change in sensitivity, we call desensitization. That's the goal of OIT.
0: What did it look like for you, Susan? In fact, look like for Julia to go through OIT, and how has it impacted these severe allergies, and which ones?
1: I don't even... Nowhere to begin on how to explain <laughs> the transformation. You know, looking back about 10 years ago, it was just, as he said, go home, avoid these foods, come back next year. And no reason to think it would ever get better. Julia had really severe eczema on top of, on top of her food allergies to the point that it was delaying her development. We got on a list uh, for a number of different clinical trials. But there were thousands of kids on the list. The newspaper articles would talk about how impossible it is to get into these clinical trials. And then one day I was at work and the phone rang saying, we think your daughter could be eligible for a trial. Would you be willing to to try it? And of course, the answer was yes. You have to essentially try out and audition your child, which involves them eating the food you know is going to potentially kill them and certainly send them into anaphylaxis. We went through those processes and those were extraordinarily stressful days. Julia did have very, very severe anaphylaxis responses to peanuts on those days when she had them. I really had to think at that time, does it make sense to continue with this trial, right? Because I'm now supposed to be feeding my kids something every single day for years uh, through the four of peanut flour mixed into applesauce that could potentially kill her or put her into anaphylaxis every single day. And is that something I really wanted to undertake? And to me, the answer was unequivocally hands down, yes, right? That to me was the only option and the only possible way to see a solution. We kind of put our fears to the side and trusted the process and trusted the superb doctors that were all involved. So it starts with a very trace amount of peanut flour that you can barely see in your hand mixed into applesauce or other things like pudding, depending on what your child can tolerate. And you just kind of build it up. So you every two weeks or so, there is a build-up phase where they continue to increase the dose. It's just a routine, you know, just like any medicine that you would give to your kid if they had anything, diabetes or cancer or any type of other illness. And so we did that for years and years.
0: It really is groundbreaking research. And I know that you, Dr. Vickery, and your team personally worked on this. And to get into the world of OIT and to have the kind of hope that now Susan has for Julia, there's another research that you are particularly proud of. Can you tell us about that and how it's also influencing patients?
2: Because of families like the Goldbergs, and many others around the country and now around the world who have really courageously volunteered to participate in these studies, that we now have the first FDA-approved treatment option uh, for any food allergy. You know, it's a lot, as you heard a little bit, to think about how to participate in a clinical trial and undergo these food challenges and the, the dosing and all the blood draws and all the other things that happen during research when you might be getting a placebo. But but without that, without people participating in research, we don't advance. In 2020, which is a milestone event to have the first product approved by the FDA for the treatment of any food allergy, what Susan described with Julia in the trial she was in was sort of like a prototype of this approach, this kind of peanut flour procedure, which was taken and sort of developed further so that it could be Made more widely available and standardized, and something you could get from a pharmacy, uh, because it takes some effort to produce. There are some advantages for distribution and for reimbursement to make it more widely available to everyone, not just people who live near one of these handfuls of centers that do this kind of thing. And that's what that's what Palforzia is intended to do. So it is it is a, a medication that's uh, FDA approved for the treatment of peanut allergy in children ages four to 17 now, and is something that we are able to offer in our clinic here at Children's and at many other clinics around the country. Uh, This is designed to be used by by any allergist. And really, while it starts to chip away at the problem for some kids in that age group um, and for their peanut allergy, obviously, there are kids outside that age group, there are kids allergic to other foods, Um, for which Palforzia is not an option. But what it does is that crack the door open. That says, okay, there is a pathway to get a product through research, uh, through FDA approval and to the clinic for all kinds of other allergies, for all kinds of other patients. And so this conversation will continue to evolve pretty quickly over the next five to 10 years.
0: I mean, Before, you just could say, hey, be careful, and that's not realistic. There wasn't really any hope. And this is a huge transformation, a huge milestone, as you point out. And it all happened right there in the food allergy program at Children's. Can you tell us about your role of Children's Chief Allergy and Immunology and your work with the program?
2: So I grew up in Atlanta and am from here and gone to school in Georgia and then left the state to do my training and then was fortunate to land a faculty position first at at duke university in north carolina where i had the opportunity to work with really just a world leader in this field who became my mentor and who was intimately involved in the research that susan was describing earlier back in the mid-2000s and then i got the opportunity to come back home to children's to sort of launch a food allergy program here in 2018 so we've been at it for about five years and we've been really busy Uh, despite the pandemic but then i also i run a research program here at children's uh, that's focused on food allergy and primarily these clinical trials to develop new treatments and in present state we have nine uh, active clinical trials we have several others starting before the end of 2023 and we're in discussions for future projects beyond so we have a very busy research program where we're actively enrolling uh, clinical trials for food allergy and now other conditions actually uh, eczema asthma we're working on approaches to prevent allergies by treating infants before their allergies have developed. Um, So we have a big and active research program. And then the other part of my responsibility is is to help manage the clinic and make sure that the patients that need these treatments have access to them, um, which is a big challenge because Children's is a big place. Atlanta is a big city. There are lots of wonderful allergists out in the community, but the size of the problem is so big that it's difficult to see all the patients that need care. And so we're really focused on on trying to um, improve access to treatment, to scale the organization uh, to an extent, right? Because it, if we work to develop new treatments and try to change the, the, the landscape of food allergy, but then the people that need them don't have access to them, then You know, that, that hasn't helped, right? The
0: scale of the problem is so big. You said it right there, and it hits you over the head to realize how many families are affected in the way that Susan's family is affected. But I hear a lot from friends, other parents, and they say things like, with young kids, we grew up in the 80s and 90s, they didn't have food allergies like this. What do you think is the cause of these food allergies? When do children develop them? And did something change over the last three decades, four decades that has resulted in an increase in some of the food allergies?
2: Thanks, Lynn. It's a great question, and one I get all the time too. And people find out what it is I do for a living. You know, I could be at a at a park or at a party or something. That's like one of the first questions I usually get. We all have that sort of experience. Like this didn't seem like it was a problem when we were kids. Um, What's going on? There are probably numerous environmental conditions that are causing chronic inflammation over time, and that that inflammation in those susceptible people looks like allergic inflammation. In people with other backgrounds, it would look like a different kind of inflammation but it has to do with sort of the changes in, in kind of modern life that have developed over the last few decades. Because in fact, allergies are much more common than they used to be. That's a true thing. And it relates to a number of environmental things that are happening that are different than the generations that came before us, our parents' generation or their parents' generation. They probably all combine to some degree in these susceptible people to drive this inflammation, I think one of the the key things to emphasize is we don't really understand the complete story, the complete origin, and and these are things that are kind of ubiquitous. So it's not, somebody didn't mess up. If their child has allergies, it's not that they made a bad decision or did something wrong. This is happening across the population. We don't quite understand it yet. We're starting to put some of the pieces of the puzzle together, Um, but it's a complex effect that's driven by these environmental changes that are just different now than they were you know, say 30, 40, 50 years ago.
0: I think that's something important to point out because as mothers, Susan, as parents in general, Susan, I'm sure you're with me, right? We think of ourselves and say, was it something I ate during my pregnancy? Was it because I had to have a cesarean? Tell me, Dr. Vickery, and clear this up. Is it related to the decisions that we make during pregnancy?
2: No, absolutely not. I mean, this is a question that comes up a lot. There's often understandable sense of possible regret, did I do something wrong? I thought I followed the instructions. The simple answer is we don't know what's driving food allergies or allergies in general. Um, And so we give the best guidance we can, but this happens to people um, and it's not by any fault of their own. I will say one thing that's an important part of this that Susan pointed out earlier is the connection with eczema, um, which might be important for for listeners to know. Virtually all kids that have food allergies have eczema to one degree or another. And it's, it's become clear that the, the worse your eczema is, um, meaning the more severe it is, the more the body is involved, that the stronger the medication needed to treat it. And the earlier it starts, the more likely food allergy is. And so there's a connection between the skin and the inflammation in the skin and the development of food allergies. And infants with eczema are a particular high risk group Um, and may need to be evaluated by an allergist um, or a specialist early in life. There may be actually a causal connection there.
0: And Susan, I want to get your take on this. There are so many families out there that are going through what you are going through. What advice do you have for them? Because there's conversations that need to be had with teachers, camp counselors, caretakers, families that they're going on playdates with. How would you advise some of the people that are just starting out in this journey? Oh, it's a big question tough question
1: yeah. <laughs> um, i have I have a lot of thoughts here a lot of times when I talk to families that are dealing with a, a newer diagnosis, there's a lot of fear and and there's a I think what tends to be problematic can be when people aren't aligned in the household. You may have one parent saying, "Well, we'll just see if she outgrows it. You may have another parent that says, "I want to undertake this." approach clinical trial or Palforzia. And if you're not all on the same page, it can be hard and it's very stressful. It's a lot of work, right? It requires a lot of discipline and compliance, but if you do it and you adhere to it, it's going to change your kid's life. And one other thing I would say that really made a huge difference for us was I am, we two-parent working family. To get to clinical trials was very Hard just to not miss work. The the cost of it was hard, but I really relied on a huge network of people that loved my daughter and loved me. And my parents, my in-laws, everyone was really, really involved in the whole process and people want to help.
0: And you know, it speaks also to many of us who are lucky enough to not have to go through this and it's that piece of compassion that Dr. Vickery mentioned, understanding that this is not a choice for other families and being so much more diligent than just, oh, there's a child in the classroom that has an allergy. Oh, you know, that that's not a big deal, okay, I'll send him whatever. You have to be so very careful as if it's your own family. That's a really big takeaway, I think, for many people. And Dr. Vickery, I want to wrap things up with you because I think many Many people listening right now and hearing Susan's story, identifying with it might want to say, okay, I want to give this a chance and have that hope for myself and my children. What are the next steps for those that may want to participate in the same kind of trials?
2: We have built a website, very simple, choa.org slash food allergy. We try to keep it updated with all the latest and greatest about what the clinic does as well as a click through to our, our research offerings so that people can go and learn about the clinical trials that we're offering currently uh, and the ones that are coming. You don't have to participate in research to be a member of the clinic and vice versa, if you're a member of the clinic, there's no expectation that you will participate in research. But I I see them increasingly as sort of an ecosystem, right? By learning from patients and their needs, we ask better research questions and then research obviously drives um, better clinical care. And so. So we're trying to build a system at Children's that does both, and as I say, we're five years in. This will keep me busy for the next, you know, twenty years. There's lots still yet to do, but but I think we're off to a good start, and and we just appreciate the opportunity to to share this information with the the listeners, and just want to thank Susan for for being vulnerable and sharing her family story, so that hopefully people can get a better sense of really what it's like to have a food allergy.
0: I completely agree. And Dr. Vickery, thank you for the important work that you're doing, giving families like Susan the hope that they never had before. And Susan, as Dr. Vickery said, being able to open up and share your story, I can't imagine, is easy. But to be able to reach the audience and influence even just one person, it's kind of like the promise that you made to Julia when you first got the diagnosis that you will make sure that she's okay and make sure this is right. And you've done that. I I thank you both for being on here.
1: I thank you. And thanks to Dr. Vickery, I don't know how to put in words how our family's life has changed. From what the world looked like 10 years ago till now, everything has changed and things are okay now and somewhat normal, as normal as they can be. We're just so grateful and words can never express that gratitude. Before we wrap up,
0: I'm excited to welcome Catherine Sherry from our Strong for Life team. She was actually one of our first guests on our first season, and she shared some incredible tips for navigating mealtime and snack time. So today, I'm really excited to have her back to help parents pack these snacks and lunches their kids will eat that also offer good and balanced nut-free nutrition. So Catherine, thanks again for being back on. Hi, Lynn. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So let's start with What can parents pack in lunch? Because the go-to is a peanut butter and jelly. And without that, that's sometimes what only kids will eat. So what's your advice there?
3: So we don't actually have to stop packing peanut butter and jelly. We just have to switch out the peanut butter. And a great safe alternative is sunflower seed butter. Now with anything, people could be allergic to that as well. But it's a much more rare allergy than peanut butter. And sunflower seed butter is already being used in schools and early childhood centers as a safe alternative. It tastes great. It has similar protein content to peanut butter.
0: So really it's a win-win. I think that you really made a key point here, protein. And I do this a lot with my kids. Like it's so important to get that protein in there and they do love the taste of peanut butter. So what are some other ways that parents can add protein to their kid's lunchbox so that they stay full throughout the day? So protein is important, of
3: course, but actually, Anything with nutrition, there's more to it. We want to look at all of the food in the lunchbox. And sure, make sure that there is some protein in there, but ensuring that there are other filling components, such as fiber, some fat. Those all combined together are going to help keep our kids satisfied and get them through the school day.
0: Yeah, that's always key. It's also important for concentration, I know, with my kids. So what are some easy go-to lunch ideas that don't contain nuts? So
3: some things that we can think about to pack in a child's lunch that are going to be satisfying for them are switching out that white bread or tortilla or pasta that we might pack for the whole wheat version so it's more filling and has fiber in it. Another great alternative to get some fiber is to leave out the fruit juice and pack water instead. Let your child choose the fruit that they want. It can be fresh, it could be canned, but that's going to contain the fiber in it. And if they get to choose it, hey, they might be be more willing to eat it too.
0: What would you say about maybe meat in particular, like kids that don't like meat or maybe they're vegetarian, how they can get their protein?
3: Yeah, so there are lots of other options and ways that you can get protein in that are plant-based, that don't involve meat. Yogurt, cheeses, beans are a great option. Maybe buying a thermos and packing some veggie soups that have beans in them for your child. There are plenty of options. And of course, what I mentioned earlier, sun butter. Use that sun butter on crackers, with bananas, in the sandwiches. And there's lots of ways that we can add protein that aren't neat.
0: Yeah, and also snacks. Do you have, in closing, some ideas for some nut-free snacks? Yeah,
3: so same thing. When we're choosing a snack, make sure that it has a couple different food components to it. So we could do things like edamame for some fat in there and some popcorn and a piece of fruit on the side, right? We could choose some hummus to dip some veggies in as well. Choosing beans, beans are a great alternative, bean and cheese wraps, using yogurt. Yogurt, like a Greek yogurt is high in protein and it lets the kid get creative. Let them choose their fruit to go in it. Let them choose a crunchy topping for it. All of those are gonna be nut-free options that are filling and satisfying for the child. That's the most important piece is that they're actually gonna eat it. Exactly. So how can people get more information about this? So if they're looking for lunches that are filling, satisfying, and are nut-free, they could check out our website at strongforlife.com, which will be linked on this podcast webpage. And there will be lunch ideas, there will be snack ideas that are all filling, nut-free. So check it out there.
0: Catherine, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Lynn. To learn more about the strategies and tips discussed today, you can visit choa.org slash podcasts. That's C-H-O-A dot slash podcasts where we're gonna link to a ton of great content about OIT and other allergy resources from Dr. Vickery and his team. We'll also link to helpful resources from Strong for Life that offer school-friendly lunch and snack ideas. And to make sure you do not miss an episode, be sure to subscribe or follow Hope & Will wherever you stream your podcasts. I'm Lynn Smith, and this has been Hope & Will, a parenting podcast from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta.
1: This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only. It is not to be considered medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgments when making recommendations for their patients. Patients in need of medical or behavioral advice should consult their family health care provider.